Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, have you ever wondered if the world will eventually run out of stories? You know, oftentimes there, there are stories that people tell and there's new stories. And in our world today, those stories are told via film or, or book. And uh, you ever wonder, though, if the world will ever run out of new ones and just have to repeat some old ones? Uh, maybe that's the case. Uh, maybe it's already begun to happen, uh, as evidenced by the movie True Grit. Now, True Grit has come out to us in a couple of different incarnations on film. There was the 1969 version with John Wayne and Glenn Campbell. Uh, wave at me if that is the true grit you are familiar with. Okay, uh, it says a little something about our demographic, I understand. Um, there was also another version of this movie that came out in 2010. And uh, this version has Matt Damon and, and Jeff Bridges and a few others. If you're, this is the version of true grit you're familiar with. Let me see your hand. Uh, okay, we got a few moviegoers here. Uh, but this story was so compelling that it deserved to be told twice, I guess. But as the story was told, there's some differences between the first telling and the second. See, the, the first telling uh, revolved around the Duke and the second one around the dude. Uh, so there, there's that difference uh, between these two. Uh, but also, even beyond that, uh, the, the storytelling was just a little different. And, and part of it comes out in, in uh, the rating of these movies. See, if you were to Google today, what was the rating of the original 1969 True, True Grit, what you'll find is that it was rated G for general audiences. Um, the 2010 version, though, was rated PG-13, and some argued that it should have been rated R. Um, now, it kind of asks the, begs us to ask the question, you know, do you really need true grit in a G-rated world? Um, you ever think about that? You ever wonder about that? I mean, the second version of this was a little darker, a little more intense, and, and certainly somebody with grit is needed in that world, but is, is grit really needed in a, in a G-rated world? And I think that's a relevant question for us because we live our lives today in a difficult world, a real world, a, a hard world, a world that is really for mature audiences only. We live in a world where we have a number of things going on, death, disease, disappointment, discouragement, divorce. We could say that this world that we live in now is a world that could be rated D for those things. And as we live out our lives in this rated D world, um, do we have the grit that is necessary to stand? I mean, is it, is it possible that there's only a few marshals out there who are tough enough to make it through this life, or is there something that is available to all of us that allow us to stand and live the lives that we were created to live, that would prevent us from being crushed amidst the difficulty of this life? Well, I believe that there is such a, a grace that is available to us that gives us the grit to stand in hostile territory. And, and that Strength comes from God Almighty himself, who offers us not just eternity, but offers us grace and strength for today as we live our lives in hostile territory. And the Apostle Peter, as he wrote his letter to Christians in modern-day Turkey, summarized his message in the letter that we know of as 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, and this is what he says, 
after a book talking about discouragement and difficulty, he says that there is a true grace of God that is available to us. And he's asking us to stand firm in it. Over the next 10 weeks here at Wildwood, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to see what that true grace of God is and how it can offer us grit to stand as we live our lives in hostile territory. And this world can feel a little hostile at times, can't it? We're going to look at that today. And our first installment in this series is really going to look at the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. And so if you've got a Bible, you might take it out and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. And as we live our lives in a rated D world, uh, my hope and prayer is that we find grace and encouragement and hope from God today. I'm going to read these verses for us, and then we're going to go back and unpack them in a couple of movements. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter begins by telling us who writes the letter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In our day, we sign our letters at the end. In their day, they put their name right up front. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, who did he write this letter to? He wrote it to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now in those 12 verses, we begin to see the true grace of God that is given to us to allow us to stand in this hostile world. We're going to see two things from this passage today. The first thing we're going to see is this. The true grace of God gives us hope today in light of tomorrow. The true grace of God gives us hope today in light of tomorrow. We see this really in the first six verses. And I want to begin in verse 6. Because verse 6 is the place where Peter mentions the trials that God's people were going through. 
He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. See, Peter knew that as he wrote this book, as he wrote this letter, he was writing it to a church that was suffering for their faith. This is not a book that is written in good times. This is a book that was written in difficult times, in hostile times, because the church was, was under fire. History tells us that this book was written in 64 A.D. from Peter while he was in Rome. In 64 A.D. in the city of Rome, in the Roman Empire, was a very difficult time for Christians. Uh, make no mistake about it, this was, this was some hostile territory. You see, Nero was leading the Roman Empire at that time, and he had gotten upset with all Christians. He wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth, and so he trumped up a charge against them. And in July of, of 64, Nero said that Christians were responsible for the burning of the city of Rome, therefore they must suffer the consequence of his wrath. And this is really grueling, uh, uh, really grueling what he did, but Nero actually would gather up Christians, he would arrest them, and then he would wrap them in tar, and he would light them on fire so that the streets of the city of Rome would be lit by, by Christians who were suffering for their faith. This was hostile territory. It was difficult times. We don't know if Peter wrote this letter uh, right before those events happened and God in his providence was preparing his church for the suffering that was to come, or if this letter was written right after the decree from Nero went out and the state-sponsored persecution of Christians began around the, the Roman Empire, and Peter was writing prompted by the Spirit of God in response to what was happening. But we know that the context of this book is a hostile context. It is difficult. And Peter writes and talks a lot about difficulty in this, in this book. As a matter of fact, 15 different times in five short chapters, Peter is going to reference trials, persecution, suffering, and difficulty. What's interesting to me, though, about that is that he uses eight different words to describe what Christians would go through. He doesn't pick just one. He doesn't just say persecution. He uses eight different words. In verse 6, he calls it not just the trial, but various trials. In other words, whatever Christians were going through, whether it was difficulty suffering for their faith in Christ or if it was difficulty just living in this broken and fallen world, whatever the circumstances that we were going through in this life, we would be tempted to lose hope. We would be tempted to fall into despair as we live our lives in this rated D world. Has that ever meant something to you? As you've lived out your life in this world, have you ever been tempted to lose hope? Have you ever been discouraged because of the events that are happening around you? Uh, if so, you can relate to the events that happened in the first century. Uh, there are things that, that I can relate to as well in our life. There have been difficulties that we have gone through that have caused us to, to, to waver in our hope. Um, well, to us who waver in our hope, to us who are experiencing difficulty living in this rated D world, uh, the most peculiar command comes at the first part of verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice. Now, when I've gone through difficulties, when you have gone through difficulties, is your first response to rejoice? It's a hard command, isn't it? It's difficult when difficulties come to, to rejoice. But notice what he says. He doesn't say uh, that we are to rejoice because of the circumstances. As a matter of fact, the circumstances that they were going through caused them grief. He acknowledges they didn't make their face go up. It made their face go down. 
There's a realness to what, what Peter is saying here. He was going through it himself. Peter himself would die for his faith right after this book was written. There's a realness when he says that there is grief that we go through, but he says that we have the opportunity to rejoice, but that opportunity to rejoice is not by focusing on the present and on their difficulties. The opportunity to rejoice came by looking forward to tomorrow and what God would offer them then. Instead of focusing on the circumstances of today, Peter says we need to look forward to tomorrow and the hope that God has offered And the this reason that he begins verse 6 with, the this reason that allows us to rejoice is what he described in verses 3 to 5. The hope was found in Christ. Verse 3 says it this way. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why can we rejoice in difficulty because of our circumstances? No, they make us grieved. We can rejoice today because we are connected to the God of tomorrow who can encourage us today. And this God who is connected to us, that we have the chance to worship and and to know, he's a God of great mercy, it says in verse 3. According to his great mercy, he's a a God who loves us, who has pursued us, who who cares for us. If you're, you're here today and you're listening to this message, know that the God of the universe is pursuing you. His grace is coming to you. He's inviting you into a relationship with himself. He is merciful toward you. He's moved to act on our behalf. And what has he done as he was moved to act? Was he moved to do a little thing or a big thing? Well, verse 3 continues and tells us it was the biggest thing that he was moved to do. He gave us a new life. It says that this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, if we are to have a hope for tomorrow, we need an upgrade from the standard equipment we're walking around with. See, our, our, our lives that we live now, the bodies that we have, they're, they're marred by, by sin. One day they will expire because of, of the brokenness and the frailness of what we have. And in the lives that we live now, many times we want to look back just on our past. We see our, our, our failure and our sin, and when we feel ashamed, we want to look just at our, at our present, at all the circumstances and the difficulties that are going on around us, and it causes us to want to be crushed and to not have hope. But Peter says that we can have hope for tomorrow because Christ is offering us a brand new life. It says that in Christ we can be born again to a living hope that was secured for us through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In other words, Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died there to be the full payment for our sins. And if we believe in that, if we embrace that in faith, then God doesn't just make us incrementally better, but he gives us a brand new life. He causes us to be born again with a new soul that is tuned towards him, with a new future that will be with him forever. See, we can have hope today, not because of our past or our experience. We can have hope today because of what God has promised us tomorrow. He's made us new to live a new life in the future in Christ. He goes on. And he says that this life in the future, after we're born again to the living hope, comes with it an inheritance, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. 
In other words, tomorrow is a whole lot better than today. The inheritance that God has for us, the, 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 our experience with him, the, the riches of, of heaven and, and cleansing and the loss of this frail and broken body and the, the, the mending of relationship, uh, all of that we have to look forward to as an inheritance in heaven. See, we can have hope today in light of what God has promised us tomorrow in the, the, the full matriculation of these things. He, he says in the end of verse 5, he says that this is a salvation that is revealed to us in the last time. In other words, there's a portion of our salvation when we come to relationship with God in Christ where we get to experience a little bit of it right now, just a taste of it. But it's going to get better even in the future. We have a future hope in Christ. We can have hope today in light of what God has promised us tomorrow. And so as we are going through this rated D life, we can, we can be encouraged by that. I'm looking around the room. I, I know what many of you are going through. Many of you I, I don't know, but I know that there's some difficult things. There's been deaths in the last year of loved ones. There's been diseases that you're dealing with right now. There is brokenness in relationship. There is divorce that is, is gone through. There, 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 there's pain and there's struggle. And, and when you're in the midst of those things, it's possible to just feel the world just crashing in around you. And if you only look at today, uh, it's difficult to have hope. But in Christ, we can look forward to tomorrow if we would just but trust in him. And just so we know that this letter is not just something that is written for just a few, but it's offered to many, we need only look back to verses 1 and 2 and see who this letter was written to. Peter says this letter was written to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, we, we see that and, and we wonder what in the world that's, that's talking about. It's kind of strange language for us, but he was writing this letter to Gentile Christians. He was writing this letter to people without a pedigree, without a spiritual heritage, without a history. They were scattered about the earth, and God had selected them to receive this message, that they would respond in faith, that they would be recipients of his blessing and would be strangers on this earth until one day they would be at home in heaven. And if you're hearing this message today and your heart is warmed and drawn to what God is offering you in Christ, then this letter is written to you as well. If you are embracing by faith what God is offering to you, we, these, these scattered strangers in this world, can be selected by God to receive his mercy and grace. See, we can have hope today in light of tomorrow, but it all happens because of him. The beginning to our hope is all found in Christ. See, the first thing we see is that true grace gives hope today in light of tomorrow. But we're going to see a second thing today. The second thing we're going to see is this. True grace gives light today when you are in the dark. True grace gives light today when you are in the dark. And what I mean by that is that when we, we live, if we live our lives in the dark, that means that we can't see things. Earlier this morning, I, I went down this staircase right out there and I forgot to turn the light on before I got on the stairs. And that was not a pleasant experience um, because I couldn't see even my hand in front of my face. Uh, thankfully, by the grace of God, I made it down there, but it reminded me of what happens in the dark. In the dark, you can't see. And the reality is in our lives today, we, we live them in the dark related to the future. 
Now we have, we have promises of God for what it will look like, but we can't see it right in front of us with our eyes. We live in a world where, where, the, where our future is somewhat dark or clouded. We have to take it by faith. And as, as people who are connected to, to the God of the universe, what he's asking us to do is to embrace him by faith. Faith is the certainty of things hoped for, things unseen. See, God is asking us to have faith and to believe in him. This is the normal practice for the Christian. And, and that's why I think Peter makes the change in, in verse 6 and into verse 7, and he, and he talks about faith. After mentioning that we can rejoice in the midst of various trials, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, he talks about faith here because Christians are to believe things that they can't see, things that are, are somewhat in the dark. Not that it's unreasonable for us to believe that God is real or that he exists, but we're called to believe it even when we can't see it. See, this is tough, right? It's easy to believe that God is good when you win the lottery. You know, you win the Super Bowl and the camera comes in and somebody says, you know what, God is just so good. God is just so good. We say that when things are going well, right? But, but when things go poorly, it's harder to say, isn't it? When, when what we see in front of us doesn't look like God is good, it is way more difficult for us to say that. And you know what? I say that out of personal experience, not out of theory. And yet God is asking us in those moments where life is hard in this rated D world, he's asking us to exhibit faith in him. See, the trials that we go through really reveal our faith. They, they purify it. They show it for what it really is. And if our faith is shallow and it's not really anchored in God, then when difficulties come, we might fade away. But when we go through difficulties, if our faith is real, it will be standing at the end of the day, trusting in our God. He talks here about faith, and I think it's because he's getting ready to talk about what is unseen. Look where he goes in verse 8. Verse 8 says, though you have not seen him, meaning Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I think this is a, a, a fascinating phrase because when we read this, it says, what, is it, what, what does it mean when he says that they did not see Jesus? I mean, in the original Greek, what is the point of that? Um, here's the point. They had not seen Jesus. Um, it's, it's really compl complicated. And that's hard for us to grasp sometimes, right? Because, I mean, these are Bible people. Bible people saw Jesus. You know, we live in, in Norman in, in the 21st century. We don't see Jesus. But Bible people saw Jesus all the time. And that's, that's true if you lived in Israel at the time that Jesus was alive on the earth. You did get to see him. But the vast majority of people who lived on the planet never got to see them with their own eyes. They are embracing him by faith. And that included the recipients of this original letter. And we know that they didn't see Jesus for a variety of reasons. First of all, we know it because of the time stamp on the letter. Again, history tells us, good history tells us this letter was written about 64 AD. That was 32 years after Jesus had died on the cross and, and was resurrected from the grave. 30 years separated those, those two events. Um, it's possible they, they had not seen him. He, he tells us they hadn't seen Jesus. They had believed based on the testimony that was brought to them by the apostles. But we know that also not just because of the time stamp, but we also know that because of their geography. 
You know, at the back of your Bible is this cool little book called Maps, and um, in it there's some really neat stuff. And one of the things that you see in in, in this, this book of maps is you see a bunch of names of places in what is modern-day Turkey. And these, these places are the places that are referenced in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. This letter was written to those in Bithynia and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. All these places way north of Israel. And in a day before, there, were, there weren't video cameras, there weren't audio recordings, uh, travel was, was difficult to go. These people wouldn't have gone down to Israel at that time. So distance and time verify Peter's declaration that they believed in Jesus, though they never saw him. And, and here's what's really, really cool about this, folks. That means that we have a lot in common with them. They were embracing a Savior they never saw with their eyes. And that's the same thing God calls you and I to today, to embrace a Savior that we haven't seen, and yet we know he's real. God has not left him without testimony. He's given us his word. He's given a historical record. It is certainly reasonable for us to believe, but we're embracing a God that we don't see. And I think Peter takes us there because he wants us to know that it's very normal for us as followers of God to believe things that we don't see with our eyes. And, and one of the proofs of that is seen right there in verse 8. Our very ex- presence here today is a reminder that we believe things we don't see. We believe that Jesus is real and he's our Savior and we sing praise to him, though we don't see him in front of us right now. This is what we do as believers. And it's not just something that's true for, for Christians, but it's something that's true for people who have followed God through history as well. Look at what he says in 10 to 12. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. Here's the idea. All of those Old Testament prophets that that wrote and spoke about the coming of Messiah one day, they never saw him. It's very normal for the people of God to believe things that we don't see, but are nonetheless nonetheless true. Isaiah wrote about the suffering servant in the the, the songs that we sing uh, as a part of Handel's Messiah at Christmas time. Those songs that are, are quoted were original passages written by Isaiah. Isaiah wrote them, he believed them, but he never saw them with his own eyes. When Moses wrote in the book of Genesis that one day the serpent's head would be crushed in Genesis chapter 3, he wrote it and he believed it. He had a hope that God would send a Messiah, though he never saw it with his own eyes. See, it's very normal for believers and followers of God to believe things that we don't see. And, And here's the connection. See, as we live our lives in this this rated D world, what we see many times challenges our understanding that God is good. What we see many times challenges our understanding that God is with us. And yet as a follower of God, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we ought to be used to by now believing in things we don't see. And what is so powerful about the argument that he just gives in this section is that Those promises that God gave about the coming of Jesus that Isaiah saw and that that Moses saw, those things all came true in real time, real space, real history. Our God keeps his promises. 
And so we today, as we live out our lives, though we can't see it, we can still have a rock-solid faith and assurance that it's going to come true. Now, here's the thing, though. You guys uh, are like me, and there are probably areas of your life where you think, okay, fine, but God can't work in this area. I have hope and I have encouragement in, in this venue of my life, but there are some areas and some things that cause me to lose hope. As it relates to even our forgiveness, there are things that God can forgive. I believe that he forgave me for that, but I'm not sure he forgives me for this. As it relates to God seeing you through a difficult time, it's like I believe that God could help me through that appendicitis bout back in the, in the, in the, in the fall of 84. But, you know, in this current cancer struggle, I just am not so sure. I mean, we all have those but God moments, right? We all struggle with those kinds of things. And yet we need to be reminded that we have a God who can do infinitely, abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. We need to be reminded that we have a big, big God. And one of the ways that we can do that is by looking at history. And uh, this last, uh, last, last year, I, I heard a message from Pastor Andy Stanley out in um, Atlanta. And he talked to me, put a picture up. I've got this picture up here of a cross. Now, uh, some of you may recognize this picture. Some of you others may not. But this is a picture of a cross that is hanging in the Roman Colosseum. Now, it's a pretty remarkable picture because if you know anything about the Roman Colosseum, you know that it was a place where Christians went to die. When Nero rounded them up, when other emperors rounded them up, they took them to this place to die for their faith. And yet now, today, there's a cross that hangs, not just any place, but over the emperor's entrance into the Colosseum. And what that cross represents is a reminder for us that, that God is able to do more than we ask or think. Because, because think about this. If we were to, to transport ourselves back to the first century and we were to gather up some of the original recipients of this letter who were living in the Roman Empire, some of the original Christians who Nero was stating as his goal to wipe them off the face of the earth, if we were to gather them together and we were to tell them that one day there would be a cross that would be hanging over the emperor's gate to the Colosseum, they would think that we're crazy, and yet our God was able to do that. We can, we can have hope that God can do more than even we ask or we think. And if you were to gather those, those same sets of people together, and, and you were to tell them that one day people from all over the world would go to that city, and they would go there not to see where Nero was buried, but they would go there to see where the Apostle Peter was buried. They would have thought that was crazy, but God has done that. We can have faith that our God can do great and, and, and mighty things. And if we were to tell those people in that first century, we were to gather them around and we were to say, you know, one day there will be a Caesar who will be told in the most famous story that people tell. His name's Caesar Augustus, but he will not be told as the central character of the story, but he will merely be a footnote in the story about Jesus Christ who was born, who would eventually die on that cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That would have seemed crazy in the first century, and yet our God was able to do that. And if we were to tell people in that first century, we were to tell them that one day people all over the world would name their children Peter, Paul, and Mary, and they would name their dogs Caesar and Nero. 
They wouldn't believe it, but that is what our God has done in history. And we gather here today because we have this God who came down to us and saved our souls. The, the grave is empty and we are free. So let's stand and sing of the love that